You're listening to episode 22 of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I'll share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. How are you today? So we will have a masterclass today. It will be a two-part episode. We'll talk about clinical trials. Uh, first, we'll have the clinical trial preparation and then more about the execution with the selection of the CRO. Uh, and for that, I invited a special guest who is Aletea Wieland. She is the president of uh, clinical research strategies in the US and she will help us and walk us through all this process. Um, before that, so if you really like what I'm doing on this podcast, so please just go and make a review on your preferred platform. So iTunes, Google Podcast, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, just provide me a, a review because this is really helping me uh, to rank on the on those platforms. So thank you for that. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to get notified for the next episode. Okay, let's now listen to Aletea Villan. Welcome, EasyMed Nation. Munir Lazuzi here speaking for the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. And today, we'll talk about clinical trials or clinical investigation in Europe. Uh, and for that, I invite the special guest. So we have Aletea Wieland here, who is the president of Clinical Research Strategy. Uh, and she's a specialist on clinical trials and clinical investigation in Europe and US. So how are you, Aletea? I'm well. It's so great to be on your show today. Great. Thank you. So, Aletea, as usual, I'm asking my guests to introduce themselves and then we can go to the different questions. I am Aletea. I have my own consulting business and boutique contract research organization in the United States located in a beautiful city called Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. I offer agile, flexible staffing solutions and also a lot of training on high-performance teams in clinical research. As many people know, there's high attrition, there's high turnover, and that is the key to my talents that I bring to sponsor organizations. So good, and um, you are working only for US or companies or also outside of US? I work for European uh, sponsor organizations, medical device companies. I work for lean uh, regulatory and quality device firms who build quality systems, okay. U.S. sponsors, Canadian sponsors, you name it, even in Asia. So all the world is All working. over the world. That's right. <laughs> Great. So, Aletea, uh, a question I'm usually asking people uh, on this podcast is, what kind of book would you recommend to other people so that they can maybe change their life? Or yeah. <laughs> One of the more contem contemporaneous books that I've read in the last few years, it was released only uh, two years ago by Richard Harris called Rigor Mortis. It's how sloppy science creates worthless cures, crushes hope, and wastes billions of dollars. And in the U.S. in particular, a lot of taxpayer dollars have been going into research for the last two to three decades. And this book really exposes why we haven't had the cures 
that we had expected in a lot of research and what we can do moving forward to learn from these very valuable lessons. So I highly recommend that book. Again, it's called Rigor Mortis by Richard Harris. Okay, I will put that on the show notes. Uh, yeah, and I hope it will also help because I suppose it's also talking about clinical trials, maybe. Or some Very stuff. much. <laughs> yeah. And especially from the regulatory side of things. Yes, it, it goes into interviews with the FDA as an agency, the things at large pharmaceutical companies and device companies that are broken, and how taxpayer dollars, especially in the United States, have been wasted, unfortunately. So the right book for this episode, I suppose. That's that's exactly right. Right. Thank you. So I will do. I will put that on the show notes, and then if people want to read that, just click on the link, and then you can get that directly on Amazon. Okay. So um, let's now teach a bit our audience about clinical trials um, or clinical investigation uh, in Europe. So um, this is really a topic that is, um, I think, difficult for a lot of people. A topic mm -hmm. that uh, people are asking a lot of questions also because of this the change of regulation that uh, is now uh, occurring here in Europe for the MDR. Uh, and I hope yeah, you can really help us to have more clarity on that. Uh, from my side, I don't have an extensive experience in clinical trials. Uh, I have executed one, um, maybe the first steps, and then we had to stop. Uh, so yeah, I will also, I think, learn a lot of things today. So thank you for that. Uh, and I hope also the audience will learn a lot of things. But first, maybe let's start by the basis. What is a clinical trial? So maybe it could be first a good, uh, a good introduction to this topic and to uh, let people really understand what we are talking about. Absolutely. So a clinical trial, or also known as a clinical investigation, is an experiment conducted in humans with very specific aims and a scientific rationale. It also takes into consideration years, decades worth of regulations, standards for patient safety, ethics, conformity, and data integrity. So it's not an easy thing for people who are new to clinical research to understand. It's a very complicated experiment with many regulations that have to be followed to, to maintain patient safety. So we are talking specifically about humans, um, yes. When we are doing some experiments on animals, so like preclinical studies, pre so the mm -hmm. same or? Um... Uh, there can be a lot of uh, requirements still for, uh, you know, safety of the animal, certainly ethics, ethical treatment of the animal, as well as coming up with the scientific aims of that particular preclinical study. So, yes, and then there would be a quality report at the end that sort of distills the data that you derive that help make certain claims and then shows various uh, promise to take that preclinical trial data into humans, a first-in-man or a pilot study. That's right. Good. And um, we are talking about clinical trials mainly uh, in medical devices, but also in pharmaceuticals. So it's uh, nearly the same kind of, uh, of a process, I suppose. Uh, what, uh, is, um, um, what is really the timeline, if I can say for that? I hear a lot of time that it can take years and years to get a clinical trial done. And it's not so. Is there a, a specific yeah, timeline or it's really random uh, depending on products or the results? It really depends on the type of resources in terms of money that companies have. And so they can accelerate to the best of their ability, their clinical research program, 
whether it is for taking uh, data from preclinical in animals into a pilot study. Um, what is also interesting to think about is how the regulatory authorities view the size of a particular trial and the risk of the particular trial or for patient indication. Uh, obviously, for rare diseases, these are onerous clinical trials to undertake. For something where the disease is very large, such as COPD or cardiovascular disease, you know, those are a little bit more uh, easier in terms of getting the patients into the clinical trials. But back to your question about the length of time, you know, it goes back to the resources that the company actually has. And it's been shown uh, and documented uh, very recently that on average, pharmaceutical companies need about one to two billion dollars to take a molecule into a successful phase three clinical trial over the course of about 12 to 15 years. It's a little different uh, for medical device companies. Obviously, if a company had a less risky device, maybe a moderate class, a class two device, um, their uh, you know study in in Europe for CE mark has less of a burden, right? Because especially if there's predicates or other similar types of devices that are already on the market, they're coming in behind, and so their burden of proof is less than a pharmaceutical company that must uh, conduct a very large randomized controlled trial. So for, for medical device companies, it just depends. It depends on the risk, their intended use, their indications for use, their labeling claims, and if, if they're best in class or if they're first in class. And uh, so, uh, because yeah, as we have this uh, new change in the regulation in Europe, um, there is a lot of question about should I do clinical trials or not? So when a manufacturer should consider to conduct a clinical trial? So is there some criteria to, to yeah, satisfy or is it something that is, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really mandatory for everybody, if I can say. Well, uh, you know, there's definitely signals in preclinical when you're ready to go into your first in man or your pilot study. And sometimes uh, medical device companies will take a look and say, you know, I want to take, I think I know where this device is going to have real utility, but let me conduct a pilot study just to either figure out some operations to make sure that in a larger clinical trial, we can actually conduct the study or that there should be enough safety signals in that first in man study to then continue. Because let's face it, we don't want to um, spend a lot of time and resources on a medical device for which there might not be promising safety and efficacy in the smaller clinical trials. So that's sort of the first step, right? Let me do the proof and concept. Let's see operationally if this makes sense to uh, deploy in a larger clinical trial. Let's also work with the regulatory authorities. Let's work with the notified body in um, Europe. Let's work with the US FDA to really do the smallest clinical trial for the highest chance of winning the biggest success of getting that labeling claim and market authorization. So you mentioned about the, the, the risk of the product. So mainly, mm -hmm. um, the, if I can say the clinical trials depend on the risk of the product. Uh, and you, you've said that uh, the companies have to determine that before they can, can start 
or um, work on a clinical trial? Um, is it the companies that have to define this uh, risk or is it something that an organization has to determine? Uh, what is exactly the process for a company that says, I have my product, I don't know if really this product is already existing on the market on, on this form. Should I just make some literature research or should I uh, go for a clinical trial? Um, how, how people have to think about that from the beginning, if I can say, before to say, yes, I need to go for that? Terrific question. Uh, you know, basically, if you are very much like something else on the market, you can uh, basically claim substantial equivalence or that those are a class of the same type of device. You might just now be a best in class. Maybe you take the same intended use and the same indication for use, but maybe you, you believe you have less risks associated with, for instance, a cardiac stent, right? And so uh, it's up to the sponsor to go to the regulations, which um, everyone knows the Internet is a va very valuable resource. Most of the definitions for classification are both on the U.S. FDA website, on notified body uh, websites, as well as all the regulatory authorities across Europe. Um, they, they are a wealth of information to sort of say, what is my device? Is it a low-risk device? Is it a moderate risk device? Is it a high risk device? Now, in truth, some uh, countries do have additional classes of a device. For instance, in Australia, I believe they have a, a class four and in Canada as well. But basically, when you look at the risk profile in terms of you know, moderate to severe, those are typically the types of devices that then need clinical trials. Um, you know, the, there are numerous programs, uh, especially with a notified body in uh, Europe, where if you conduct your own very solid literature review and substantiate that you are essentially equivalent, there are certain opportunities for you to not have to do clinical trials if your bench and your animal studies show sufficient use of that device. However, based upon the intended use, and obviously if it's an implantable device, um, or if you have uh, the desire to have a physician actually make a decision based upon your test report, so in other words, to um, you know, uh, treat the patient in accordance with the report that's generated from your device, that most likely is a higher risk, it's a higher sensitivity and specificity, level that you are then uh, deploying a certain, uh, you know, outcome for the physician to then follow, those are going to require clinical trials. Now, the size is going to be completely uh, up to the statistical, um, you know, approach uh, and, and what those endpoints of the clinical trial will be. Can we remind uh, quickly maybe to, to the audience, um, when we are talking about um, clinical trials, as you've said, um, I suppose the, the, the authorities are not asking uh, specifically for it because we have humans that are on the clinical trials. So means at the end, uh, we don't want to um, uh, damage human life for just some something that is maybe low risk. 
um, you talked about the equivalence of products. And I, I receive a lot of time this question about uh, how can I say that my product is equivalent to another one um, without, uh, yeah, and being sure that it's, it will be accepted by the authorities. So is there some kind of tricks or tips, if I can say, to, to, uh, to evaluate this? It certainly is a dance, and especially in Europe, it's a dance with your notified body. Exactly. And uh, the notified body is very crucial in helping to guide, even though they don't consult, um, they certainly will help understand what are the requirements in that literature review. That literature review is so important that you're actually creating a protocol for that literature review and you are uh, determining these are the three other devices that are on the market that are cleared with this same in intended use indication for use. And here are the exact uh, mechanisms of action that are deployed in our device and this is how exactly we are equivalent. And then all the tables of the literature will then explain the, the data, the clinical trials that they ran. And, um, you know, again, if you're a moderate risk and you're very much the same, uh, it's possible the notified body may wish for you just to run a small pilot trial to assure the safety of your device, not necessarily the efficacy. Uh, in the United States, we definitely are having a little bit more reform. Mm -hmm. There's early access pathways. Um, there's now some interesting, uh, you know, programs that the FDA is deploying specific for pilot studies uh, so that U.S. patients are beginning to get, uh, you know, products just on the same time point as, as Europeans and folks in Australia, et cetera. So it's good because, yeah, I wanted also to ask you what is the difference between the Europe and US. So I think, yeah, there is a substantial difference in terms of uh, regulations. And as you mentioned, there is some reforms that are maybe uh, coming on that. But um, if uh, people have to kind of um, um, have to work on that, not just understanding what is a clinical trial and move forward, but just really to execute one, what kind of regulations they have to follow in Europe and US also if there is a difference? Yes, very much so. Um, in Europe, there is ISO 14155 and the MedDev requirements, the guidance. Again, all these are posted online. Um, for ISO, you do have to purchase that uh, regulation or that standard. And um, it very much looks a lot like ICHGCP, which stands for International Conference of Harmonization good clinical practices. So for devices, you need ICHGCP, you need ISO 14155, and in Europe, you need um, the MedDev requirements. In uh, the U United States, it's ICHGCP and ISO 14155, as well as the quality systems that we point to, uh, the Code of Federal Regulations Part 820. If I remember well, the ICH is free also because I work in pharma oh, yes. and I think it's uh, it's also on the EMA website, so you can get mm -hmm. that uh, directly. Uh, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a good a good reference for that. So I will also put that in the in the show notes. Where, what are the different regulations that people have to uh, to follow? And I will also put the the links to it so that uh, people can go directly directly to that. Mm -hmm. um, Let's talk now, uh, we talked mainly about Europe and US. So what about the other regions? So should I create a clinical trial for 
a specific region like Europe and US or can I do one for all the world if I can say? Great question. And, you know, I think that there's still uh, regions of the globe that still want patients in their own countries in order to get authorization in that country. Um, I've been working with Europe and uh, uh, U.S. FDA regulatory bodies for the past two decades. And what I've been seeing is um, more uh, adoption of an, a, a harmonization of the quality of the data. If it's run in Europe, the US FDA may, it's not m must or absolutely 100% of the time will, but may actually consider that European data. Whereas before in the past, the FDA was very fussy about no, we have to actually use this device in U.S. patients. And, but when you look at that type of attitude, um, there's no difference than European patients and American patients. But I think what they were really concerned with was the overall quality and integrity of that data. But now what we have seen is the quality of the data is very, very good coming out of Europe, coming out of Australia, coming out of China, Asia uh, markets. African markets, et cetera, um, with the, the quality of the data is, is just as good um, as U.S. data and can Canadian data. So I think that, um, you know, with the harmonization efforts of the competent authorities, the U.S. FDA, et cetera, um, you know, the, we want to um, certainly try to get medical products that are meeting unmet medical needs to patients faster. And a lot of the regulators would just throw obstacles uh, in the pathway of a lot of startup companies, mid-sized medical device companies, et cetera, and make these standards that were just um, really uh, questionable. But uh, so reform is happening for sure. So uh, maybe a, a bonus question for you. So uh, we, you just mentioned about um, startup companies and uh, medical device, um, big organization, if I can say. Do you see, in your experience maybe, a difference in terms of executing a clinical trial for startups that have maybe less money and big organizations that have more money? Is there a different practice or are they doing exactly the same thing? That's a fabulous question. So. The startup companies obviously have more challenges that lie ahead, right? They're, they're investor backed. They have different rounds of funding that come in the door, um, as opposed to a large Medtronic, for instance, that has, um, a, a great deep pocket, if you will. So, um, there are no differences, unfortunately. The regulators do not care that you are a small startup company. The standard is exactly the same if you're small or large. And so that's what is, you know, the most challenging to a small startup company is the standard's the same. The regulators don't care that you have limited resources, but the smaller companies actually have a great opportunity to what I term, I always say this to my clients, measure twice and cut once because there's so many opportunities to do risky things by racing through your clinical trials program, having poor results because of the design, because you race through, um, not because the device failed, but because you didn't set it up for success.
And so I always try to recommend and um, tell my clients and small startup companies, it's it really um, behooves everyone to measure twice and cut one time. And that means run that clinical trial as well as you possibly can. Um, never go after cheap. Um, make sure that you're getting the endpoints that you need to then inform the labeling claims and make sure that you're using the very best partners uh, to help you conduct that clinical trial. Good. So a good message for, for companies that are maybe asking themselves if they, if they, if they will be maybe um, have less, uh, less uh, regulations or regulators will be more kind with them. So no, Unfortunately not. <laughs> Good. Uh, so I think uh, we are now at the end. So I think we are really understanding uh, everything about um, clinical trials. Uh, just for um, the end, so is there something your organization can do to help companies uh, to execute their clinical trials? Or is there any other information that is maybe missing here? Yes. Here's what I love to do, especially with the startups and mid-sized companies that might be bringing most especially a novel product, so something that hasn't been out on the market before. We also, as you know, Monir, in Europe, you know, there's a big focus on IVDs now, right? Um, diagnostics and all these neat, sophisticated biomarkers and things with a, a laboratory-developed test and things like that. So what I like to do is work with uh, regulatory and quality partners because Really, in the infancy of a startup company, you must build that product roadmap and make sure that the right players are in the room together, right? And we all have different expertise. Um, I am a regulatory and clinical research uh, expert, as you are a quality and regulatory expert as well. So I bring the various parties in the room together and really make sure that product roadmap has the quality system that we need to build, locking that device design down, making sure the documentation is really, really solid before we then go to the notified body to talk about that clinical trial, making sure that we have the right program in place, making sure that we are going to visit with the FDA for that one hour meeting that we're granted in a pre-sub. Um, to assure that the study we are designing is going to get the the uh, highest success uh, win at the end. The worst thing that we could possibly do is ignore the regulators and ignore the notified body. So I oftentimes bring in that partnership, but I also advocate to my medical device clients, the regulators too are our partners, yeah. right? So are the medical societies. So are the folks who, and the healthcare systems that will eventually reimburse this. So again, without that strategy, you're really, you might end up with a product that nobody adopts and, and nobody is buying. And so it's a consultative approach that I bring. I also uh, assure clients that without looking at reimbursement, medical society adoption, clinical practice guidelines, obviously the regulators who then approve it for market authorization, uh, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you don't consider those uh, stakeholders as well. That's good because uh, I think uh, what you what you are saying mainly is um, you have to plan accordingly. We have really to 
I don't know where I read that somewhere that uh, on your project the planning phase must be two thirds of the planning of the of the project, and then you have one third of execution. Because yes. as soon as you plan really well, uh, I think there is no surprises, and you have really to 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 do that. But yeah, there is some yeah. companies that have a different mindset that say rush, rush, rush. But at the end, they are yeah they are they are failing. But as you said, also I think documentation is really cl- critical. Uh, that they have really to to execute uh, maybe as you said twice some some mm. tests instead of once just to be sure and also to prove to the uh, to the regulators that you have really uh, not just executed once but uh, have many uh, many uh, many samples uh, available. Yeah, good. So um, great. Um, so just uh, to uh, for the people if they want to follow you. So is there any places where you are famous? If I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but I am on LinkedIn. So if you just look for Alethea Wheeland in LinkedIn, also my website is www.clinicalresearchstrategies.com. And I am also in Twitter with my own name. So I will put all this on the show notes. And just uh, for, for people, uh, I will also invite uh, Alethea for uh, another uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, to talk uh, to us more about uh, the relationship between sponsors and CRO uh, and to help us really understand how uh, this combination or this work uh, can really uh, be um, important uh, to have a successful also clinical career. So yeah, we'll have uh, again Aletea. So thank you Aletea and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye.